Let's hear God's word together. This is from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury of the temple, as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we just ask that you would be with us now as we dive into your word, as we consider that Jesus, Yeshua, our Savior, our helper, our friend, King of kings and Lord of lords is the great I am. Lord, we need hope right now. We need light in the darkness. We need a guide in the wilderness. So I pray you would be with us now. And Holy Spirit, you would work in this word, that you would make it effective and real upon our hearts, that you would bring change so that we might know you more deeply, that we might love our neighbors more fully, that we might trust you in all things. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, I came across an article recently in a UK periodical called The Tablet talking about the fact that Google searches for the word prayer have skyrocketed in the last month, and I bet you can guess why. It says, the rising interest in seeking information about prayer on Google has shot up exponentially during March 2020 when the COVID-19 outbreak went global. This was written by researcher Janet Sining Benson, an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and executive director of the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Culture. Whew. Sounds like a fun job. Using Google Trends data on internet searches for prayer for over 75 countries, not just in the West. She said she found that search intensity for prayer doubles with every 80,000 new registered cases of the virus. And if you are like me this morning, I bet you can understand why. <laughs> I want to just begin by saying again, Happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. I am glad to be with you in your living rooms this beautiful Sunday morning. But man, it's, it's Easter. And even though we have an incredible film crew and 
We're bringing a service to you that, that seeks to glorify God and help us to enjoy Him forever. I am well aware that we are not together right now. Easter is a time for hugs and smiles and everybody wearing their crazy hats and showing off their pastel shirts and their new pair of boots. And, and here we are, not together. This, this reality of not being together is a, is a symbol of death and darkness and pain and brokenness in the world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And so as thankful as we are to hear God's word this morning from the comfort of our own homes, and a few of y'all need to jump in the shower and give those pajamas a wash, that's a good thing. And yet to be separated now is, is not how it was supposed to be. As I was driving into the church this morning, the streets were empty and the businesses were closed. I was overwhelmed with the moment by a sense of sadness. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the pain that this has caused to so many. We don't want to see anyone suffer needlessly with, with health issues. And yet we all know that the impact stretches far wider than that. Some of you that are listening to this this morning have lost your jobs or you've become instant homeschoolers or work from home folks or you're just feeling lonely and depressed and sad and tired and it's hard to understand why. People have been asking me, how am I doing? How are people in the church doing? My answer to that question is I'm kind of just feeling everything every day. Notice myself much more tired than normal, perhaps a little bit snappier and quick-tempered than normal. Psychologists refer to this as a collective trauma response. There is over us all right now a malaise of anxiety and uncertainty that weighs heavy, and we're fragile. We're fragile, and so none of us should be surprised that Google searches for prayer have increased with the exponential curve of those infected by this horrible virus. And yet in the midst of that, I don't think it's time to placate or solve our problems with platitudes or Christian bumper stickers. I have questions. You have questions. Walking in this wilderness together, and yes, we know by God's grace we'll get through it, we'll come out of this, but in the meantime, walking in this wilderness makes for, for doubts, for concerns, for questions, for worry. And I wonder if you felt any of that. I wonder if you felt the darkness creeping in. I wonder if you've been asking with me, Lord, where are you? Crying out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, where is the light, where is our guide in this time? And so I've come to realize, not only through this passage, but through the situation that we're in, that we need light. We need the light of the world. We need guidance. We need guidance for the gravest of times. Verse 12 in John's gospel, which is the second of seven, I am sayings, points us to this great hope and truth. That although darkness remains on the earth, Jesus is it. He's the answer. He's the great I am. He is the light who can guide us. And that is the word that I believe that the Lord has given me this morning through his word. That Jesus is the I am. He is the light who can guide us. 
The good news is this. The first way that he guides us is through empathy. Jesus cares about our doubts and our questions. I love that. In fact, we're invited to consider alternatives. This is exactly how John moves his gospel forward. Did you notice what we see at the beginning of verse 12? Again, he spoke to them. Who? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. And what is this bit about again? Well, again means they've been in an ongoing debate and dialogue about who Jesus is, what he promises, and is he true? The crowds are following and watching. They're having their questions and doubts as well. And yet in chapter 8, there are no crowds. The crowds are mentioned seven times in chapter 7. But here in chapter 8, it's just Jesus with the religious leaders. And John is again moving his gospel forward with questions concerning controversy. John loves to use signs and symbols. He loves numbers. The number seven is all over his gospel. But one of the main ways that John moves his story forward is to show the battle between Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah, and the religious leaders. Because you see, Israel was supposed to be the light. Israel, the people of God, they were supposed to be the light of God to all the nations. And yet they're struggling, they're enslaved, they're oppressed, they're in a trial, just like us. And here comes Jesus to say, no, you you haven't quite got this right. I am the one. You can't work your way to God. God had to come to you. And that's why we see at the end of chapter 6, preceding Jesus' claim that he is the bread of life, that many who were following Jesus for entertainment or curiosity or perhaps for a free meal desert him. I think this reminds us of the empathy of God, the mercy of God that guides us. He wants us to ask our questions. He wants us to have our doubts, but then to doubt our doubts in the answers that he provides. He wants us to see all the options. God's not insecure. <laughs> He's not like you and me. He's not worried that if we seek too hard, if we, if we dive into the truth too deeply, that, that somehow he's going to be derailed. He wants us to think through those things because he promises us that if we, if we seek the truth, we'll find it. And the very truth of Jesus is the truth that will set us free. So we begin our, our passage with some questions that should be rhetorical to us. What about our light? Where do we go for light? Where do we go for hope? Where do we go for guidance? Can the light and the hope and the guidance that we go to, can it sustain us? Can it satisfy us in the midst of a trial? Can it answer the problem of what we're all feeling right now, the collective traumatic response? Can it forgive? Can it forgive? And I think if we're, if we're honest about, you know, sort of the the, the way of the world, the karma of the world, the fate of the world. There's no forgiveness there. There's just law and rules and duty. Does it know your name? You know, if God is nothing more than a, than a mere force out there, just, you know, impersonal and sort of holding everything together, energy, there's no personal relationship there. There's no guidance for you in your hard times. And I think on Easter, we should also ask, can our hope and can our light, can it, can it conquer death? Can it raise us up from the dead? Again, I think God's word wants us to consider these options. 
God, God doesn't speak to us and say, oh, no, no, we just want you to have blind faith. Don't think about it. You know, do little religious things to forget. No, Jesus says, seek, seek me and you'll find me. I'm the light of the world. Can the light that you put your trust in, the hope that you hang your hat on, can it raise from the dead? Can it renew? Can it recreate? Or are we just, you know, big, special, fancy, glorified flesh computers? You know, and in that case, you get one life to live. You better try your best. You better hope you do well and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And so the light of the world comes to us as a guide with the empathy of our doubts and our questions. But of course, Jesus never leaves us there. He turns us now away from ourselves, away from the navel-gazing and the need to find some sort of inward light to the divinity of God himself. He begins with empathy. He turns us to his divinity. And so it's a bold claim that Jesus makes. He cannot be just a good teacher. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord, one of the three. He can't just be a good teacher because here Jesus says clearly, I am. And because John arranges these I am statements in sevens, and because we know that he's hearkening back to the very words of God to Moses in Exodus 14, this this saying, I am, is Jesus' claiming to be God himself. Now, if you want to pick a fight with the religious leaders in the first century, in the second temple Jewish period, where they're awaiting the coming of the Messiah... There's no better way to do it than this. Be a Jewish carpenter born in Bethlehem, but supposedly from Nazareth, and make a claim on your own evidence because God is your own witness that you are, I am. Jesus uses God's divine name here, Yahweh. Jesus is saying to the people, I'm the one who guides and leads the people of God. I'm the light. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm not only the Savior who is a man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, but I am God Himself. And so the Pharisees once more try to trap Him. What's their their problem here? Well, they're trying to use the law as best they can to bring Jesus to court, to build a case against Him, to silence Him. They tell Him He has an invalid testimony. Why? Because Deuteronomy, in the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy makes it clear that anyone in a court of law is required to have two witnesses to substantiate their claim. Jesus says, I have two witnesses. Unlike you people, I know who I am and I know where I'm going. My two witnesses are myself and my Father, who is the God of heaven. And so you can see why the Pharisees are dumbfounded. Who is this guy? Is he a teacher? Is he just out for money? Is he some kind of charlatan? Is he trying to sell, you know, little prayer rags to raise a fund to buy a new private jet or, you know, some sort of like private boat on the Sea of Galilee? Is he like so many of the other messiahs in the past, those who have made the claim to the name? Is is he here basically to start an insurrection and overthrow the oppression of Rome? So they want to trap him. And we do the same thing. When the light comes to us, when it exposes us, when the light takes us from the darkness into the light and shows us who we really are, we do the same exact thing. They want to trap Jesus because he is disruptive. 
He's a threat to their ways, to what they see, to what they understand, to their expectations of who God is and who the Messiah should be. He's a threat to their control. And friends, I just want to remind us on Easter that this is the heart of religiosity. When we talk about man-made, works-based, merit-earning, appeasing God religion, this is the heart of it. Because a religion only has enough light to illumine rules and rituals, which if you follow them rightly, maybe in the very end you'll have done enough good to earn God's favor. That is a dim light indeed. What's the difference between religion and the very righteousness of God that comes to us through Christ? Religion says you must earn it. Jesus says you can do nothing to earn it. You must receive it. And this is what was so frustrating to the Pharisees and religious leaders in Jesus' day. Because they were sitting there trying to make their own fire. While Jesus came down and said, you don't need to make your own fire. The brightness and power and glory of the sun is here to shine upon you. So Jesus takes their religion and he shocks it all. He says, I am. I am God. And this is truly blasphemy. It truly deserves the death penalty. Unless, unless it's absolutely true. And I think one thing we all know deeply is that our striving is not enough. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person and God wants to beat you up in guilt and shame and you know, whip you over the head with the Bible. By no means. The light exposes not to shame us, but to show us that our need is deeper than we could ever imagine, but God's love is greater than we could ever dare to hope. Matthew's gospel says that if we worry, if we fret, we can't add a single hour to our life. And so the divinity of God, which comes after the empathy of God, leads us to this simple prayer. Lord, would you help us see? Would you help us see? And he does. That's why Jesus says, I am the light. God's empathy, ask your questions. God's divinity, I am God. And the light will be separated from the darkness. We must make a choice. But now Jesus reveals that he is God's mercy. He is the grace of God. He says, I am the light. Now to understand what Jesus means when he claims to be the light, we have to have some context about what's going on in John's gospel. The text in chapter 7 shows us that the Jewish people are in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was a seven-day feast held in Israel every year after the highest of holy days, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to celebrate God's faithfulness to God's people as they wandered through the wilderness and were guided by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of light. You see what Jesus is doing here. He is, he is a master. He is showing Israel that their story, the story they long to see fulfilled, the story of the undoing of death and the coming of resurrection is actually fulfilled, not in their works, but in the finished work of God the Son. God was faithful to his people as they wandered. He did fulfill his promise to bring them to the promised land, but there is a greater promise. 
You see, when they were wandering in the desert, God's people had to live in those temporary dwellings. They had to live in tents, which they would set up and take down all the time as they wandered toward the the bountiful land of milk and honey, Canaan. And so in those days, Jews would actually set up during the festival for seven days, they would set up little houses to live in to reenact what it was like to rely upon God and His light to guide them. And every day during the festival, they would light four massive oil lamps in the outermost court of the temple, which meant it was for everyone so that all could see it. It would light up all Jerusalem to remind God's people as they were living in these little tents that the Lord would indeed finally provide a place for them. This is what the psalmist means in Psalm 36, verse 9, when he says, In your light do we see light. It was the way that God's people could remind themselves that they couldn't see on their own. That that all the light that they required was derivative. It had to be given and provided. They, They couldn't make it up out of thin air. They had to rely on their God. And so this is what Jesus is doing when he makes this audacious claim. And again, I just want to encourage us to to understand how audacious and presumptuous this claim is. He either is the Lord, he is God, he is the light. Or if there is no resurrection, we should join in the words of the Apostle Paul. We, uh, above all, have had our hope in vain. Jesus says, I am the pillar of light. That was a picture. The Israelites wandering through the wilderness, that was a picture. Because as we all know, Israel could never fully reach and achieve all the promises that God had bestowed upon them. They were, as it were, not the second Adam, but Adam 1.5. In the garden, Adam said, I want to be the light. And he ate the fruit. He said, I want to be my own God. And that's what we mean when we talk about sin. Well, Israel was given the light and the law of God, and yet they could never keep the promises that God required of them. And so Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the light you've always wanted. I'm the light you've always needed. And it's not going to come in the form of religion and rule and ritual. It's going to come instead in the form of resurrection. And that's why John's gospel doesn't only build with the ensuing controversies, but with escalating signs and wonders. We're told that Jesus' first sign, of course, is turning the ritual purification water that was in jugs at a wedding into the new wine of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. These signs escalate up to the last sign, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I love this sign because Jesus knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he will be killed. If he goes back to care for and tend to his friend, he will lose his life. But he lays his life down, and there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend, for Lazarus, and raises him up from the dead. And and everyone in Bethany is astonished. Mary and Martha are in shock and awe. People are weeping and cheering and screaming and yelling with excitement. Hosanna, the son of David, has come. Lazarus is raised. But you know what? Lazarus died again. He was raised from the dead. And maybe he lived another 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We don't know. But he died again. 
And so all of these signs in the book of John, they don't just escalate to shine light on the revelation of Lazarus' resurrection, but just like the pillar of light in the wilderness, they point us to the true and final resurrection in Jesus himself, the Son of God. As a result, it is the resurrection of Jesus himself that secures our final way in the wilderness. It is Jesus' perfect life that procures for us the righteousness we need to be in the presence of God. It's his perfect death that completely atones for our sin and brokenness and wounds and baggage in our past and even the brokenness of the whole world. But it's the resurrection of Christ that guarantees That even in the midst of persecution or pandemic, all things will be made new. Yes, in our life we have doubts, we have questions, we have darkness, we have trials, we have pain. But the light of God guides us in Christ by putting death itself to death in the death of the Son of God. The light became darkness for us on the cross that he might rise again to shine light on the whole world and guarantee us that come what may, we may grieve. Indeed, in this situation, as Christians, we should grieve better than anyone in the world. Because we don't believe it's just karma or fate, or you're just complex computers and, you know, too bad. We grieve because we know death is not the way it is supposed to be, but we have seen the light. And so even as we grieve, we hope more strongly and more deeply and more profoundly than anyone. I see many of you doing this. There are so many stories in our church right now about people calling and texting, writing cards, dropping off cupcakes, serving in new ways, writing stuff for the paper, putting stuff online, email, Facebook, connecting with one another. And church, maybe I just want to end here. If this is true, if Jesus truly is the light of the world, if God meets us with empathy in our darkness and doubt, if he reveals to us our divinity so that he can burn away, as it were, the the false claims and the dross of religion, if he shows us the mercy of Jesus, who is the very light that will lead us to the promised land, then church, let that light fill us this morning. I know it's weird to have Easter in your own homes, And not be here together with hugs and pastels and Easter egg hunts and brunches with the family. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but it doesn't mean that we cannot shine brightly. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've never followed Jesus as the light before, would you just try it? I don't think I can convince you of anything. In fact, my Bible teaches I can't. It's only the Holy Spirit who convinces us. But Jesus says, I'm not insecure. Come to me, ask the hardest questions. See if I'm real. See if I'm a lunatic or a liar or just maybe, just maybe in all of your darkness, in all of your life, in all of your need, I'm the light you've always been longing for. And if you're a Christian this morning, if you're part of our church, man, will we follow the light into the light so that we can be the light for those around us? Will we avoid fear and panic and scarcity and hoarding? And will we take the opportunity right now to act out in more abundance, more love, 
But we allow Jesus to disrupt us, our control, and our expectations. So we can show the world what it really means to shine brightly as those who stand in the light. Let's do that. Let's do that together as we pray. Father, thank you for your good word to us. Lord, I'm so thankful that even in this season where we're all feeling all the feelings, where we feel fragile with our joys and our hopes, but also our frustrations and our questions, you are the light who can guide us. You are the great I am. Thank you, Father, that so often when we come to you like Pharisees and religious leaders, trusting in our own things, our stuff, our money, our education, you know, courts of law, our ability to navigate arguments, our reasons, our confirmation bias, whatever. You do not reject us. You do not destroy us. But you shine light on the reality of those things. They cannot save. They do not know our name. And you meet us with the fullness of your divinity. And the fullness of your divinity is revealed. Not that you put out our light, but that you shine your light on us to redeem and renew and raise us from the dead. Lord, we want to care about this world We want to make a difference here, but we know we are pilgrims on the way. And so I am so thankful that you will raise all things up to new life. You will make all things new. One day you have promised for your children that you will wipe every tear from their eye. And so as I see the ravages and devastation of death around us, lost jobs, closed businesses, loneliness, depression, sadness, anxiety, confusion. I know that that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen.